This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello and happy new year, bad movie lovers. I am your host, Nick Scheist. The master of the stupid stuff! And as you should know by now... If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. But I'm not going to get into all of that today. If you want to support the show, all that information is in the outro and in the show notes. So we're just going to move right along. I did not think that I was going to do another episode this year. I thought that the Mix Nuts Christmas special was going to be the last one. But as I'm doing some auditing on another film project that I was working on for the Shice.com website, which is my website, by the way, if you haven't checked it out, check out the Shice.com. But in my year-end movie wrap-up that I do for that site, I started to realize that most of the movies that I get to cover on this show are 20, 30, sometimes 40 years old. And the opportunity for me to talk about new bad movies we love are very limited. So I thought that maybe I could do an end of year episode where I talk about all of the bad movies that I love from 2023. So that's exactly what we're going to do. And then maybe one day with a little bit of luck, some of these movies will make it onto an official fully formed episode of the show. So kick back, relax, and let's take a look at the best bad movies that 2023 has to offer. We have arrived at the end of 2023. As I'm looking at it, it's December 30th, so the clock is ticking. And before we jump into my little 2023 list of bad movies we love, I want to get into a little bit of the process that I used just to give everybody an overview. So when I looked at the list of overall total films that I had watched this year from 2023, it's sitting at about 150. And, hey, that's a lot for some people. That's not so much for some other people. So I think it's enough to give me a good overview of the year. And still, that's just about 10%. But of that 150, I looked at about 27 titles that I thought would have a good chance of qualifying. And then I realized, how am I going to do a show where I talk about 27 different movies and figured that that was not realistic. And so I decided that I'm going to set the bar as I typically do for the show selection process to begin with, which is anything that generally has a sub 6 out of 10, a sub 60 out of 100, a sub 3 out of 5 score. And that would be the line of demarcation. And then it comes down to, hey, which scoring system am I gonna use in order to make that happen? And since the scores vary from site to site or aggregator to aggregator, 
I decided to do my best to average out all of those scores. So I looked at Rotten Tomato score, IMDb score, Metacritic score, Letterbox score, and average Google review. And then I took the average of those five. In some cases, not all five of those were available because that's the kind of movies we're talking about here. But anything that ended up being a sub six score qualified for consideration. So that took the total starting number down from 27 to 21. But then of the 21, I had to think of the movies that I really want to fight for or at least believe that they deserve better recognition than they've received so far. And that left me with 15 total movies. And I feel like that's a reasonable number that I can handle. But I do have the full list and I will acknowledge all of the rest of the movies because I still like them. They just weren't movies that I loved in the same way as the 15 that I'm going to talk about here. And I thought to myself, too, of like, how am I going to do this? Do I need to play trailers for these movies like I do typically on the show when we talk about films? But I realized that this is not a visual show. So doing something like sharing a bunch of trailers for 15 films is gonna just kind of all blend together. So rather than do that, I'm just gonna talk about the movie, who made it, who's in it, why I liked it, and go from there. So without further ado, let's get the ball rolling. So first out of the gates, we have Johnny and Clyde. Directed by Tom DiNucci, written by Tom DiNucci and Nick Principe, and starring Megan Fox, Avon Jogia, and Ajani Russell, but you may also recognize Vanessa Angel and Robert Lissardo, who is a ton of fun in this movie. Now, Johnny and Clyde has an average score across all of those metrics of a 2.73 out of 10. And there's a part of me that totally gets that because when I watched it, I knew immediately I love this movie and it could one day be a bad movie we love Hall of Fame candidate. It's that kind of movie. It's incredibly colorful. There's a lot of stylistic choices with the wardrobe that I think are just fantastic. And it's obvious that everybody that is participating in the film is having a lot of fun. And that always means a lot to me. And as you may have guessed, based on the title, it's about a couple on the run. But this couple happens to be a pair of serial killers who are madly in love, and they're just going on an endless crime spree. And they want to rob a prosperous casino. But that casino happens to be owned by Megan Fox playing a really mean ass boss bitch. So that's what you're in for with this one. Sexy, violent, colorful, weird, funny, sometimes dumb. Right now, it is not currently streaming, but it looks like it's available for rental pretty much everywhere and looks like you'll probably get the best deal on it from Vudu or Amazon. I'm working my way from lowest average score to highest average score. So next up, with an average score of 4.4, which is a huge jump, from the number one spot. We've got Paint, uh, written and directed by Britt McAdams, starring Owen Wilson, Elizabeth Henry, 
Paul Cospod, and you probably recognize Stephen Root in there as well, and Michaela Watkins. Be warned, this is a Bob Ross spoof, but this is not a Bob Ross biopic. This is the story of a Bob Ross-like character named Carl Nargle, who is Vermont's number one public television painter. And he's on top of the world in terms of public access cable television, but when a younger, better artist comes along and steals everything that he loves and that he believes that he's entitled to, he's hit in the face with times changing very rapidly. Now, I understand that a lot of people do not like movies that are heavy-handed in their messaging, but this is a comedy, and watching Owen Wilson go through the realization that his time is over, and it's not just because they found somebody who's more entertaining. He has to come to the realization that he's being outskilled, at this job as well. And it's in that process that we get to have a lot of fun as the audience. I saw this one as one of the Regal $5 previews. So I saw it a couple weeks before it came out. Didn't know what to expect. Didn't know I was going to see it, but ended up having a lot of fun with it in the end. And I think Owen Wilson's performance alone is worth it. And Michaela Watkins is, of course, great in it as well. So if you have AMC+, Plus, you can check that out right now, or you can rent it basically everywhere. Up next is another movie that was a Regal $5 preview, and that's Mafia Mama. This one has an average score of 4.6. It was directed by Katherine Hardwick, written by Amanda Sithers, J. Michael Feldman, Debbie June, and it stars Tony Collette, Monica Bellucci, and Eduardo Scarpetta. And in this film, we get Tony Collette playing the granddaughter of crime boss Don Giuseppe Balbano. And he dies, but his final wish is that his granddaughter comes and takes over the family business. So she moves to Italy, becomes the Don of this crime family, and Monica Bellucci plays her consigliere. And at every turn, she's doing all the things differently than her grandfather did. And of course, it's pissing off everybody within the organization. But this one walks an interesting line between being a sort of hardcore mafia movie that has the violence and all that and being realistically a more slapstick comedy story. And it's not quite what mafia was with Jay Moore, but it's a more rated R mafia comedy. For me, it worked really well. My expectations were not super high for it, but Tony Collette is obviously always good. Monica Bellucci is a lot of fun in this, and uh, Eduardo Scarpetta, who plays Fabricio, really does a fantastic job of being sort of the entitled brat of the mafia family who wants to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak. I almost made the film club watch this for Mafia Month, but I decided to go in a different direction just to avoid the blowback. But in hindsight, I should have pulled the trigger on this because it turns out that I know some other people in the film club who actually enjoyed this movie too. So there you go. It's currently streaming on Fubo, Paramount Plus, and or Showtime. 
Next up, we've got God is a Bullet, directed by Nick Cassavetes, written by Nick Cassavetes and Boston Tehran, starring Micah Monroe, Nicola Colster-Waldau, and Carl Glusman, and Jamie Foxx is in this. I don't know why he doesn't get uh, that billing, as is January Jones and Jonathan Tucker. So a lot of familiar faces that if you actually watch the movie, you'll recognize. This movie is brutal and gritty and violent and very stylish as well. You know, I can understand why people didn't really care for this, but at the same time, it does a lot of things that a lot of other movies just aren't doing. And it takes chances and it has balls, for lack of a better word. But it is the story of a... I don't know if he's a small town detective, but he's like a sheriff and his daughter gets kidnapped and she gets basically indoctrinated into a cult and he is trying to infiltrate this cult to save his daughter and avenge the murder of his wife who was killed during the abduction of his daughter. And in the process, he meets Micah Monroe's character who has escaped the cult and is willing to take a risk to help him get back his daughter. So think of it like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo a little bit, I think would be a good comparison. And I mean, if you like any of those movies, whether the original trilogy or the remake, I think this one falls close enough to where the scores I see for it here with an average score of a 4.7, I think is just far too low. It's not really streaming anywhere right now unless you have Hoopla, which I do. So maybe I'll watch it again, but it's going to be unlikely as I try to power through some end of the year projects. But it is available for rent seemingly everywhere. In the five hole, we got my man Nick Cage in the Western, The Old Way. It has an average score of 4.88 out of 10, directed by Brett Donahue, written by Carl W. Lucas, starring Nicolas Cage, Ryan Kiera Armstrong, and you got Clint Howard, Abraham Ben Ruby in there, Shiloh Fernandez. You'll see some familiar faces. Now on the surface, this might just be a revenge western about a gunslinger who retires then his wife gets killed and he's forced back into the game, so to speak. But I think really this is more about this man and his daughter than it is about anything else. And particularly sociopathy, as strange as that might sound, there's a lot of focus on not just the relationship between Nick Cage's character and his daughter, but that this thing that's inside of him that made him such a ruthless and successful gunslinger in the past has now been passed down to his daughter and how he grapples with that in the wake of his wife's death and how he parents now that he has to be the primary parent. So it's a lot more interesting than just a, a simple revenge western, which, by the way, I have absolutely no problems with. I love a good revenge western, but I feel like this one is a lot deeper than that. And look, maybe you take a glance at Cage's ridiculous mustache in this movie and you automatically dock at points, but what can I say? I'm a sucker for Cage and he delivers yet again. 
you can currently stream this one on Hulu or as part of the Hulu Disney ESPN Plus bundle, and you can rent it everywhere else. Next up, we get Cat Person with a average score of 5.23. So we finally crossed over into the fives now. This movie is directed by Susanna Fogel, written by Michelle Ashford and Kristen Rupenian, starring Emilia Jones, Nicholas Braun, and Geraldine Viswanathan, and Isabella Rossellini, Hope Davis. There's some good actors in this movie. You should check it out. I saw this one either the same day or right around the same time that I saw the Royal Hotel, which also deals with this sort of looming specter of predatory behavior by men towards women. Now, these movies handle how these women deal with this behavior very differently, but they do tap into similar themes. And in a nutshell, this young woman working at a movie theater meets a patron and they begin to text flirtatiously and they're hitting it off and things are going well. But she begins to find that the person that she interacts with in text sort of doesn't present as the same way he does in person. And while her roommate is throwing up a lot of caution flags about this particular relationship, she doesn't heed those warnings and ends up in a pretty precarious situation. But I just really like the exploration of not just dating, but of modern dating specifically and how slippery of a slope it can actually be. But this movie also uses a lot of humor. You get really good performances from Nicholas Braun and Amelia Jones in the leads, so you've got that going for it as well. It is currently streaming on Hoopla also, but available for rent basically everywhere else. Next up, with a score of 5.62, we've got the Netflix exclusive Jung E, which is a sci-fi thriller about an artificial intelligence program that is used to train soldiers for combat and takes a look at what it actually takes to produce a program like this and the lengths that some governments may go to in order to actually bring something like this to life. This one is written and directed by Sang-ho Yeon and it stars Kang Soo-yoon, Kim Hyun-jo, and Ryu Kyung-soo. And for the most part, for a Netflix original that is clearly low-budget, it makes the most of its visual effects budget. It does a really, really nice job with the VX, VFX, to be honest, and reminds me a little bit of another Netflix original. I think it was last year, Space Sweepers, which was another uh, foreign sci-fi film, which was also really good if you want to check that one out. But I like the psychological burden of the story that this film is telling. It's not super present up front, but when you actually reach that point in the film where you start to understand what's actually happened, it's a lot more realistic than you may want to give it credit for. But it was one that was on my release radar. I was like, hey, you know what? I would probably like this one. And then I didn't watch it for most of the year and came back around to it. And I was like, hey, this is actually pretty damn great. 
So if you want to check it out, it's on Netflix and only on Netflix. Up next, with a average score of 5.68, we've got The Pod Generation. This film is written and directed by Sophie Barthas, stars Amelia Clark, Shuetel Ejiofor, and Rosalie Craig. This might be another one that just hits a little bit too close to home regarding fears of automation and exactly where that may lead us to, but I think those fears are warranted, number one, and two, fairly realistic, because this movie is set in a not-too-distant future. You have a giant tech company that is offering couples the opportunity to have your pregnancy in a detachable womb, and Rachel, the character played by Amelia Clark, decides that she wants to do this because she values her career and what she's done in her job, and she doesn't want to put herself through the physical requirements of labor. So I think that's more than fair, and I think that's kind of the tangible thing that makes this realistic, but as we go through it, we begin to realize the separation of that, and you know, we find out that the character is maybe not getting advice from the best source either, but I don't want to spoil that too much. So if you're interested, it's not currently streaming anywhere, but you can rent it. So if anything I said sounds interesting, then please check it out. I really enjoyed it. We have arrived at the number 10 spot, and I counted wrong on my own spreadsheet, and there's actually only 14 movies so we're inside the final five right now, and we're starting with Sympathy for the Devil, with an average score of 5.7. This was directed by Yuval Adler, written by Luke Paradise. Luke Paradise? I don't know. Either way, that's a cool name. And starring Nicolas Cage, Joel Kinnaman, Cameron Lee Price, and Alexis Zollicoffer. Now, this movie did not end up being the movie that I expected, but that's my fault for putting my own expectations on it. And it's really about a guy going to meet his wife in the hospital, guy gets into his car with a gun, and they go for a drive, and there is some underlying tension there that is being investigated throughout the course of the film. And it's just totally worth it for Nick Cage being zany as ever. And I think the reason that he's on this list twice is because in a movie like The Old Way, you get to see how measured, how stoic, how just quietly powerful Cage can be as an actor. And in this, we get the zany Cage rage him flipping through like six or seven different accents in this he's wearing a shiny red blazer like he just got out of a high stakes card game his hair is dyed red and he's looking like a wild man so in that way it's a total nick cage ace performance but i think we also get to see a lot from joel kinnaman here as well and i'm surprised that he didn't really blow up uh, in a huge way, but maybe that's due to RoboCop remake being uh, unliked by the vast majority of the public. But even though I love the original RoboCop, I don't hate 
the remake the way that other people do, but that's probably not surprising to you. Anyway, if you want to watch this movie, it is available on AMC Plus, and it is available for rent everywhere. It is worth it for Nick Cage alone. Coming in at the number 11 spot with a average score of 5.85 is legitimately one of my favorite movies of the year, and that's Divinity, which was written and directed by Eddie Alcazar, stars Bella Thorne, Stephen Dorff, Scott Bakula, Kaylee Cowan, uh, Moises Arias, and Michael O'Hearn. And this one is very much like a high-concept film. It's shot all in black and white in the, I would assume, pretty distant future based on what we see. And it focuses on these two mysterious brothers who show up to abduct a rich, basically, eugenics scientist. Uh, who is obsessed with immortality and human perfection, and it just gets weirder from there. But the way that this story is told, the way it looks, its creative decisions, all are right up my alley. And I really like Steven Dorff a lot. I wish he would get a lot more work, but this was a good vehicle for him to be the lead here so i really hope that more people check this one out it is uh available for rent but it is not streaming anywhere i almost went and saw this a second time but i just didn't quite have time for it so i'm gonna have to probably rent it because it is gonna be on my list somewhere for the shyst 2023 film awards whether that be for most original or weirdest movie, it's up there as a contender for both categories for sure. Next up, with an average score of 5.88, we're getting musical with Dicks the Musical. Directed by Larry Charles, written by Aaron Jackson and Josh Sharp, starring Aaron Jackson, Josh Sharp, Nathan Lee, Megan Mullally, and even Nick Offerman is in this with Megan Thee Stallion as well. It's completely ridiculous. It's vulgar. It's disgusting. It's hilarious, though. And this is one that I saw with my wife because, you know, we go to a lot of musicals. We're a season ticket holders at the Pantages, so we're used to musicals. We like musicals. And as gross as this one was it's so funny that it works and we both had a great time with it and it actually has a blooper reel at the end which comedies have just kind of forgotten about but those were always some of the best moments of comedies was watching the cast just have fun at the end and this one remembers that so if you get the chance you're gonna have to rent it because it's not streaming anywhere, but maybe within the year, it'll be a little bit more easily accessible for people because it is a lot of fun. This list would certainly not be complete without maybe the best bad movie of the year, and that's Cocaine Bear, directed by Elizabeth Banks, written by Jimmy Warden, based on a true story, kind of, starring Kerry Russell, Alden Ehrenreich, O'Shea Jackson, the late Ray Liotta, 
the great young actress Brooklyn Prince, got Isaiah Whitlock Jr. in here, Margot Martindale, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is a fantastic cast. Matthew Reese is in this as well. Uh, I get that maybe people expected one thing, got another thing. It's not quite really a horror movie. It's not quite really a comedy. It's not quite really a thriller. It's sort of melding all those things together. But one of my favorite things about this is that at the core of what is happening in this story, you get this story about family and different family types and specifically about parenting. And this is something that really nobody that I have heard has spoken about when it comes to Cocaine Bear. And yes, you get a bear high on cocaine fucking people up, but most of the movie is not that. You know, so I understand people maybe dis being disappointed because they just wanted to see the the Sharknado version of this, where it's just this bear does coke, murders everybody, and there's no other story going on. But there is a much bigger story going on here, and I actually like that about it when some other people don't. So if you want to check it out and you haven't seen it already, it is available streaming on Prime and rental everywhere else. So it's time for Cocaine Bear Army to rise up. And last but certainly not least, with the highest average score on the board of 5.95, just by a hair though, Cocaine Bear was a 5.94. We're now talking about the number 14 film on this list, and that's Appendage which is a Hulu original directed by Anna Zlokovich, stars Hadley Robinson, who's great in this, Emily Hampshire, who you may recognize from Schitt's Creek and a bunch of other things. And it's a story of a young fashion designer who's in fashion school and how just a few dark thoughts spiral into this snowball of self-doubt and I really like it as a story of fear of yourself, fear of failure, fear of never being good enough. It does those things really well, and it folds in a little extra element that you may or may not see coming, but if you see the poster for it, you may have a good idea. I just won't spoil it. The eventual twist at the end is a little predictable in fairness, but the style of the movie and some of the things that it does along the way, it didn't even bother me by the time it got there. I was like, okay, I have a pretty good idea that this is the case here with this character, but it goes beyond that. And it actually gave me a little bit more than just that. So I still got a little bit of a surprise at the end as well. And there is just some good looking old school horror movie stuff in this and I really was just super surprised by how much I like this but I really was into it and I hope if you're a horror fan you'll check it out it's maybe not the scariest thing you're ever gonna see but at the same time that's not what I expected or even necessarily wanted from this movie so check it out it's on Hulu since that brings us to the end of the official list, there's a handful of movies that I also considered, like The Boogeyman, which I really liked a lot as a horror movie. Cobweb is another good one that's a horror film as well. Skinamarink is in there. And all three of those horror movies have average scores of 5.72, 5.76, and 5.80, respectively. 
on a scale of 10, so all of those would qualify, and Skinnamarink may or may not pop up on a future episode, but also in that neighborhood was Transformer Rise of the Beasts, and I know it's so far down the road with these Transformers movies that just another one doesn't really change things, but I like that it was set in... I think it was the early 90s, so it has a fantastic soundtrack with it as well. I wasn't expecting too much out of it, but I had fun with it, and that's all I really wanted. Uh, we've got a movie like Foe, which is a really, really lo-fi sci-fi film with uh, the It Boy from last year, Paul Mescal, and Saoirse Ronan, and it's super minimalist, but it's very interesting. I, I would have preferred more but it is interesting and it is well made so I, I think it deserves to be a little bit higher rated than it currently is which is why it was on the list there's another Nick Cage film in the retirement plan where he gets to basically do the Liam Neeson thing and just be an old man who has a very particular set of skills and you don't want to piss him off and you kidnap the wrong person and he's gonna mess you up kind of thing and it's a comedy and Ernie Hudson pops up in it and it doesn't take itself really seriously and I enjoy that but just another opportunity for Nick Cage to show you yet another side of him and uh, Alone at Night which I don't know if that was a direct to Hulu original but I think I watched it on Hulu and you know, this has really low scores. This has an average of 3.07, so it's way, way down there. But I think it's better than that as far as slashers go. I mean, yes, it does get a little predictable there in the end, but in terms of style and color and just knowing what it is and sticking to that, it's as solid a slasher as anything else that's out there, in my opinion. It just doesn't have the sort of iconic nature that some of the other slasher franchises uh, latch onto. And then, all the films that were on the bubble that were rated a little bit too high, but then, depending on time, they may fall into my wheelhouse at some point. Biosphere with Mark Duplass and Sterling K. Brown was very interesting and strange. Also a contender for Weirdest Movie. Uh, Butcher's Crossing, another Nick Cage movie, another Nick Cage western, where he has a shaved head and he's obsessed with murdering Buffalo. Very interesting, intense performance. Uh, solid film, too, which is why it didn't end up making the official list. We've got Aporia on there, which is a, another lo-fi sci-fi film that is not necessarily about time travel, but being able to change one thing in the past and how that affects the future and how much you would want to change and how often you would want to change things. Another Nick Cage movie that made this list is Renfield, which a lot of people didn't like, but it's a lot of fun. I know Nick Cage is not the main attraction in this movie, and people really have a strong aversion to Aquafina, but she plays her role well. Nicholas Holt is very good in it. I actually ended up watching this twice, one of which was a watch party with my buddy Seth from the film club, and he liked it too. So if you trust Seth, then you should check out Renfield probably. But one that is a good sleeper that still I haven't heard a lot of people talk to uh, talk about is Nefarious. Uh, very interesting horror film about sort of demons, mythology, psychology. Uh, it 
maybe could have been better, like, you know, a lot of films, but at the same time, it is the movie that it wants to be, and Sean Patrick, Sean Patrick Flannery does a very good job in it. Uh, I wish the character opposite him, Dr. Martin, was... <sighs> I don't want to be mean to Jordan Belfi, who plays the character, but I feel like there needed to be a stronger actor in that role in order to get this film to where it needed to be. But it still stuck with me a lot. It was in and out of theaters for uh, like a week, if that, and then it was gone. So I was lucky that I was able to catch it in theaters when I did. But uh, more people have talked about it a little bit since having access to it a little bit more broadly beyond that. And the last one on the list, which I'm really glad I didn't get to do for this list was uh, Dormouse, which was directed by Avon Jogia, if I am not mistaken, and he's in it as well. But this movie just struck all the right chords for me. You could tell it's low budget, it's punk, it's 100% a comic book movie, but it's a comic book movie unlike all of the other comic book movies we've seen up until this point. Uh, and yeah, uh, even Jogia wrote and directed it. It stars Haley Law as Mouse, but you also get Famke Jansen in there. So uh, Donald Logue, who is a super underrated, uh, excellent actor as well. And I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of the year, period. I'm going to make sure that I make it a point to keep telling people about this throughout the course of the year. It, to me, this movie this year is like last year's Dinner in America, just very punk, very independent, and I love that spirit about it. And you know what? That's the end of the show. So, I mean, I gave you 27 movies that you can maybe take a gander at. Uh, there's a lot on the list. Probably you've seen some of them, to be fair, but if I talked about anything that sounds interesting to you and you haven't seen it then please uh check it out and until next time until next year stay safe be well have fun however you get your movies my sincere thanks to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode and everyone who listens to the show in general i know you have a ton of choices when it comes to podcasts and i appreciate you spending your time here with me I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies.